Welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. I want to thank you for joining me. I've got a rather important issue that, I'm, that I need to talk about here. The Seneca Nation operates three gaming facilities in, um, in, in their Aboriginal territory, which is sometimes uh, called Western New York. And these operate under the federal statute, statute which is the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. And that, that law, that federal law, requires that the native gaming operator has a compact, a gaming compact with the state. And the Seneca Nation New York State Gaming Compact, gaming compact is going to expire on December 9th of this year. So we're, we're, we're really close to the expiration of this thing. They've operated a gaming compact with the state, uh, under a gaming compact with the state for what will be, what will have been 21 years by the time December 9th rolls around. Uh, it was a 14-year term with an automatic seven-year renewal, um, and that was automatic if there wasn't a point of contention. And I'll talk a little bit about that more later. But um, so this compact comes, is going to expire on December 9th, and there is no signs of any kind of agreement that's going to come to fruition before then. And it's, it's, it's virtually impossible for, at this point, at this stage of the game, it's virtually impossible for the state of New York and Seneca Nation to come to terms and go through the entire process of not just a, um, negotiating, but approvals. And I'll talk about what those approvals would have to be and have that done by, uh, by December 9th. So there is a major issue and, a, and, a, and major points of contention um, on what happens on December 10th. IGRA has been in place for almost 35 years. And in 35 years, there seems to be more questions than answers as it relates to what happens when a state becomes belligerent in its so-called good faith negotiations with a, uh, with a native gaming operator, especially one that's an existing facility, one that's been operating for 21 years. So what happens if the state refuses to negotiate in good faith? Where does that leave the gaming operations? You know, some, some question whether the expiration means that the casino has to, has to close down. Well, and, and that's, that's absurd to even suggest that. The casino doesn't need to shut down because the state won't negotiate in good faith. That, that just, that's just not going to happen. But what does happen? So how does the system continue? There is a compact that's in place right now, and that compact, they could operate under the same terms of that compact. I'm going to talk a little bit about what that could look like. There's also the possibility that the, that the Seneca Nation could say, look, to the Interior Department, the, the state is being belligerent. They won't negotiate in good faith. Let's um, uh, work this out with the Interior Department rather than the state. You know, and, then, and there's some speculation that the, uh, the Seneca Nation and or the Interior Department could sue the state. But that's not even true because the state of Florida rejected a major provision in the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that allowed a, a, 
a native gaming operator or would-be gaming operator to sue the state into, into forcing them into negotiating in good faith. And that got struck from, the, uh, from IGRA. So that doesn't even exist anymore. And there has been no clearly defined, again, th over 35 years now, uh, and that challenge was at the beginning of, um, of, of this term of IGRA. So there's been no resolution on what really happens if a gaming compact for an existing facility expires. Where does, where does that leave everything? So that's part of what I want to talk about. But first, let me, let me explain why there will not be a new gaming compact in place uh, in time for this, this expiration of December 9th. First off, you have to have a negotiation between the Seneca Nation and the state of New York. And that means with the Seneca Nation's negotiating team, which, which is empowered through the council and the, uh, and the Seneca Nation executive, to negotiate with the state executive, that being the governor. Now, previously, the governor had recused herself from the actual negotiation, but it's still part of the governor's office uh, that does the negotiation. She recused herself because her husband represented one of the major competitors to the Seneca Nation's um, gaming operation. She, he was a principal in a company called Delaware North, which does gaming and hospitality and all kinds of things. So she had recused herself. Since um, that last attempt, and I'll talk about that attempt, the governor's husband, who was a former U.S. prosecutor, U.S. attorney, um, has left the employ of Delaware North. I haven't seen any evidence that suggests he still doesn't hold stock options and all kinds of other stuff. So I'm not sure it's a clean cut, but, but it, it, it may be. But this enables the governor to enter back into the fray on, um, on negotiating a compact. And the governor's relationship with the Seneca Nation is one that I'll expand upon, too, as I go forward. But so what's happened previously was the, the governor's office, her negotiating team, attempted to get the legislature, which has to approve a compact. But she attempted to get approval from the legislature before the, she had even had an agreement with the, with, the, with the Seneca Nation. She tried to get a blank check pushed through the, the state Senate and the state assembly, which would have said, they would, they would agree in advance to approve whatever compact she negotiated with the Seneca Nation. And they weren't even provided, these legislatures, both the Senate and the Assembly, they weren't even provided with any details of what was essentially called an agreement in principle, which really wasn't an agreement in principle. In fact, <laughs> the governor claimed she couldn't tell them because it was a non-disclosure. Turns out she was lying. But um, so the state Senate had actually passed this um, a bill that would have given this, the governor a blank check here. But the state assembly said, wait a second here. We, we're starting to hear some things. And what we're hearing, we don't like. So the, the state legislature, the state assembly wouldn't approve it. So they, and this was all being forced on the state legislature in the 11th hour, the last days of their, um, of their session, which has now expired. And there won't be another legislative session until after the, you know, until next year. It's not to say they can't be pulled into a special session, but that's unlikely as well. So they tried to get a pass, uh, blank check passed through. Uh, it went through you know, half of the chamber, but not the other half. And then the Seneca's, uh, Seneca people started catching wind on what some of these details of this agreement in principle were. And the Seneca people were pissed. To go back, the compact that is in place right now in its 21st year 
had a provision uh, which involved revenue sharing. Now, revenue sharing is not a requirement in IGRA's requirement for a gaming compact. And so it's not a part, it's not a necessary element in a gaming compact. Revenue sharing is about giving the state money. And in order for revenue sharing to be legal, the state has to give a concession to the native gaming operator that is both substantial and quantifiable. That's the Interior Department's requirement. And by substantial, it has to be actually worth, be worth more than the revenue they receive. Why would that be? Well, it has to be in the best interest of the gaming operator to have this revenue sharing agreement. So they have to benefit in a way that is bigger than the revenue sharing they're doing. Otherwise, why do it? If it's just a wash, if it's just break, if it's a break even, why even do it? So that's that ends up being you know part of the you know the numbers that need to be crunched, crunched. And so what the Seneca's had agreed to, not knowing what the gaming revenue was really going to look like in advance. I mean, they, they negotiated this back in two thousand one for the casinos that would open the, the following year. But what they agreed upon was they would give the state initially 18% of the net slot drop, which is the gross gaming revenue of their slot machines. So that means the money minus the payout, the state would get 18% of that, and the Senecas would keep the 82%. The problem is out of their 82%, they had to cover all of the costs of everything. Now that was just a part of, that was only for two years. In the next five years, after, after that two year, the 18%, it would go up to 22%, again, of, of the gross gaming revenue. And then for the final seven years of that initial 14 year term, it would be 25% of the net slot drop. So what played out was that 25% of the net slot drop and, and the smaller percentages leading up to it essentially equated to the state getting 50% of the net revenue. So when the, for, essentially for every dollar the Seneca's got, the state, the, the state got. Now, I'm talking about net revenue. I'm talking about the, the, the revenue that the Seneca nation received after the cost of operating the casinos. So it wasn't a very good deal. I mean, it, it, it was a terrible deal. So what could the state have possibly given up to get this incredibly lucrative high percentage, 50% or more of the, of the gaming revenue of a native casino when they are actually forbidden from taxing or imposing a fee on, the, uh, on native gaming? So what could they have possibly given up? Did they give up full exclusivity across the state? No. All they gave up was in a 15-county area of western New York, the state of New York agreed that they would not allow Class 3 gaming slots, slot machines, Class 3 slot machines to operate in western New York. Now, the problem with that is slot machines couldn't be operated in western New York anyway, not Class 3 ones anyway. It was forbidden by state law. The state constitution, the, the constitution of the state of New York, Forbid, forbids class three gaming, or, or it did at the time. So the state didn't really give anything up. They couldn't do class three slot machines in Western New York anyway, until they changed their constitution. And they didn't do that until the, essentially 
they wouldn't get a casino operating with class three slots until 2017. Now, as it would turn out, the first term of the of the, the initial compact would essentially the first part of the term would expire in, in uh, 14 years with an automatic renewal. But the language of the compact never suggested that there was payments beyond 14 years. It's, it said 18% for two years, 22% for another five years, and 7% for, for, for the last seven years of that 14-year that term. There was nothing in the compact negotiated by the state of New York and all their high-priced attorneys and uh, you know, all of their politicians, all, whoever else was involved. There was nothing in there that suggested there was payment beyond 14 years. So the Seneca stopped paying at, uh, at the end of 2016, they stopped paying. And as it would turn out, they would stop paying at the same time that the state's licensed casinos would come online. One of them in the same market, outside of the, what was considered the, this exclusivity zone. But the other thing that was happening, even running up to that, is the state expanded its class two gaming facilities in, uh, in racetracks. They essentially built casinos in the exclusivity zone, but they said, yeah, but they're class two, so we don't, we're not, we're not uh, violating the terms of the compact because our agreement in the compact said we, would, we wouldn't put class three machines. Now, there was a lot of wordsmithing in there. And of course, the technology changed to the point where a class two slot machine looks and plays almost the same as a class three slot machine. So there was no question that during that 14 year period that the Seneca Nation was supposed to have exclusivity, they were supposed to have government supported uh, market protection, New York State was taking market share every step along the way. In fact, it had gotten to the point where the, where the Senecas prior to 2013 had stopped paying. They withheld $600 million. And that's what I was talking about earlier when I said that dispute got, got resolved or settled in 2013, where the Senecas kept $200 million of that and gave up $400 million to the state of New York. And they did that because the state was really pressing to resolve this conflict because they were in, in the attempts at that point to change their constitution, which required two successive state legislatures to approve um, class three gaming and then a public referendum. So they were trying to get this issue settled with the Senecas and the Oneidas and the Mohawks prior to uh, going to a public referendum. So this would not be hanging out there. Now, the Senecas said you had violated the, the terms or at least the, the spirit of the agreement by, by taking market share with your class two slots. The only thing the Seneca's got out of that deal was keeping the 200 million and the uh, state could no longer call those facilities casinos and they could no longer call the games slot machines. So they just called them you know, electronic games and they called them racinos instead of casinos. But by then, you know, kind of the smoke was out of the bottle. Everybody, you know, people knew that there were three facilities within the so-called exclusivity zone that were essentially slot parlors. And class two, as they may be, they were still, you know, slot parlors, and there was no question about that. 2017, the Senecas stopped paying, and the state's licensed casinos open up. The state says, oh, no, you got to keep paying. And the Seneca says, no, no, we don't. There's no language in the compact. There's nothing in the agreement, in the contract that we entered into with you that says we pay for the last seven years of that 21-year deal. So the state pushes them into binding arbitration where two of the judges are white. One of them is a native guy, uh, and, and he is 
a former Interior Department employee. He, he, he played major roles in not only Native Gaming, but in the Interior Department, which is supposed to be the federal agency that oversees the enforcement uh, and the regulatory systems built into the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. So two of the, the two white guys basically said, well, we know the language isn't there, but it, it was supposed to be. And so they essentially changed what was an agreement to pay for 14 years into an imposition where the Senecas were forced to pay for the final seven years. And the Senecas tried to fight it, they, you know, but they, were, they had agreed to binding arbitration. But the Seneca said, wait a second, now you two arbitrators, you two judges in this arbitration panel, you have essentially rewritten the compact. We got to send this back to the Interior Department. The Interior Department would look at it. The Interior Department would not address the conflict. In fact, what the Interior Department had suggested, well, we won't review the elements of a compact unless both parties ask us to. Well, that's a little bit like a victim of a crime saying, uh, or the police telling the victims of a crime, well, we can't investigate the crime unless the, uh, you know, unless the person you're accusing of that crime uh, agrees, uh, agrees that we investigate. That's essentially, you know, uh, that, that's a good analogy right there. So even though the, the state was trying to screw the Senecas, and we're talking at this point what, a, a number that is, again, once again, approaching almost $600 million. And while the Senecas were, were going through this process, and, and look, I don't think the Seneca Nation, and I certainly didn't expect the Interior Department was going to be this, you know, white knight coming in, uh, even though it's now headed by a native person, not so white, I guess, uh, that this white knight was going to come in and solve this. But the issue was, would the Interior Department highlight the problems here and address them at some point? And they essentially said, well, we're going we're gonna to recommend a rule change because we think that there's, uh, it's not a level playing field with states. And, uh, and so we're going to recommend a, a rule change, which isn't going to come until like next year sometime, after the Senecas have to get through this process with the state of New York because of their expired compact. But the Interior Department did nothing. But before the Senecas were, had exhausted all of their remedies, Kathy Hochul, the darling governor of New York, the, the Democrat, the, you know, again, we're supposed to be, you know, everybody's supposed to think, oh, the Republicans are the bad guys, not the Democrats. They're both bad. Um, but Kathy Hochul, she literally freezes the accounts, the operating accounts of the Seneca Nation to force them to pay. Now, why did she do this? I mean, it, the likelihood the Senecas were going to pay ultimately anyway, but she was under the gun. She was trying to negotiate, a, you know, a pass through a budget through the state legislature. And in that budget, she had every intention of giving the rich owner, the, the billionaire owner of the Buffalo Bills, almost a billion dollars, over $800 million to help him fund, finance the, uh, the building of a new stadium. And apparently because he was threatening, or he and she, the, the Pagulas, they were threatening that they would uh, move the team to a, a friendlier city if the, if, the, if the state of New York didn't give them the money to build a, uh, build a new, new stadium. And it just so happens that the new stadium was going to be built in Kathy Hochul's hometown. So she was really trying to pressure to get this money from the Senecas because as soon as she did get the money, and look, she froze the accounts, the Senecas had to basically tell employees and vendors, look, those checks we wrote, you're going to have to hold them for a few days. 
because we're going through this issue with the state of New York. And, you know, checks actually bounced. The Seneca Nation's payroll checks had actually bounced, some of them. So this happens essentially on a Friday. The Seneca Nation issues out these statements out to the employees and the vendors. Hold on to those checks until next week. We're, we're going to get this resolved. And by resolved, they meant they were cutting a check for $560 million to the state of New York. So that's what they did. They, they bowed to this extortion, essentially. They were literally being held hostage to make these payments. Now, so how did Hochul do this? She actually used a law that is in place to, to force people who have been fined or have some sort of tort, you know, some sort of you know, um, payment that is, is due because of a lawsuit or, or like I said, a fine. <clears throat> That's what this law is in place for. This law says if, you, if the state of New York has levied a fine against an individual, they can freeze their accounts, not necessarily take the money out of the accounts, but they could freeze the accounts to force that, um, uh, that person to pay. So she treated this so-called revenue sharing as if it was a fine that the state of New York had against the Seneca Nation. And so the uh, Seneca Nation had no choice. They, they basically had to make the payment. Knowing that they were probably going to make the payment anyway, because they were, had pretty much exhausted most of the, the, you know, the Interior Department wasn't stepping up, and that was their last recourse. But then she takes that money, and she turns around and gives four, out of that $560 million, she gives over $400 million of it to Terry and Kim Pagula for a new stadium. I mean, it, it, you, you can't make this stuff up. But, you know, so billionaires looking after billionaires, and that's what it comes down to. So, so that's how that, that played out. And that's, so that's the foundation that exists that this so-called negotiation is, going on, is being built upon. And, and it's not going well. So I, I, I got to kind of get back to um, the, the biggest point of contention with the negotiation, which has to do with revenue sharing. Again, not required by law. And not required to be a part of a gaming compact. It is something that you can add to a gaming compact if both parties agree. But let's be honest. The current term that we're operating under until, until December is no longer an agreement. Essentially, the, the third arbitrator, a, a gentleman by the name of Kevin Washburn, he basically said the two white guys, the other two guys on that arbitration panel, they rewrote the compact. That's why the Seneca Nation was saying, okay, Interior Department, you need to, to approve this change because, or, or look at this change because we don't agree to this. So for this last seven years, the Senecas were being forced to pay revenue sharing. They didn't never agreed upon it. They were being forced because of the agreement that they had with binding arbitration and the, the failure of any court to look at this thing. Because All the courts kept saying is, hey, you agreed to binding arbitration. We, we can't even look at this thing. And since the Interior Department was playing this game that said, well, unless the state of New York asks us to look at this thing, um, we can't ask just if one, if, if one party asks. So that's the mess that was created. Now, keep in mind, the Interior Department is supposed to enforce this agreement. And they did look into one aspect of the, the gaming compact, one that suggested, um, uh, uh, was raised by some of the, uh, you know, some influential Senecas and the Seneca Nation, that the state had become a third-party shareholder, essentially, of the, of the gaming, uh, of Seneca Gaming, and which is prohibited by law. You cannot have, uh, these have to be operated or owned and operated. Now, they can have a management company, but these things have to be 
essentially owned by the, the Seneca Nation, you know, or or the nation that's operating these things. It can't you can't bring in an investor that has equity in it. Nobody else is allowed to have equity. You could you could hire a company to do to do a job, but you can't give them equity in. Um, you, there can't be any third party ownership of, of a native casino. That's just the law. But what the Senecas were arguing, the definition of a third party of uh, you know, shareholder is do they have a long term um, involvement? Well, a gaming compact that's you know sometimes 20 or even 30 years, yeah, that's a long term. Are they getting paid? Yes, this, uh, New York State is getting paid handsomely. In fact, they're getting 50% of the, uh, of the net revenue. And, and, and are, do they have any say on the, um, the operation? Well, absolutely. I mean, the governor essentially has to approve any games, you know, or, or the state has to approve any games that happen in, in a native casino. So they, had, they have um, regulatory authority, they have income, revenue generation, and they have long-term involvement. That, by definition, that is essentially a third-party third operator. But when the National Indian Gaming Commission looked at it, it said, yeah, it's true. All those three, those three measuring criteria, you know, the state does cross that threshold. But it's all, it's all part of IGRA, so it's not really a violation. So, but in that investigation, NIGC did say it does appear that the Senecas overpaid. That they paid, they paid a much greater sum of money than the value of the so-called exclusivity. And again, let me go back to, and talk about that exclusivity. Keep in mind that to the extent that the state of New York could take market share from the Senecas, they did, and they did it in multiple ways. I, I've talked about Racinos. There's no question that they built facilities that were put up to look and feel like a casino. In the fact, they even called them casinos in the beginning. And they advertised the machines as slot machines up and down the New York State through it. You saw all these advertisements. And they did it across the state, not just in the so-called exclusivity zone, but they did it across the state. But what else was the state of New York involved? Well, they've got lotteries all over the state. And they expand everything from simple scratch-offs to any you know, uh, quick draw. Some people call it crack draw because it's so addicting. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, uh, their big lotto. I mean, they they've got all kinds of gaming associated with the New York State Lottery. They also approved sports betting, and sports betting initially they said it was brick and mortar. It had to be you had to go into a casino essentially or a facility to uh, you know to place bets. Then they approved mobile sports betting. So now you had people in Western New York who could gamble essentially on their phones. They could place their bets. They could, you know, call DraftKings or, you know, any of these other, you know, sports betting enterprises. And so every step along the way, the state was, was finding ways to grab gaming market share. Some of their old stuff, like lotteries, their new stuff, like these racinos slash casinos. And, of course, they ultimately changed their constitution so they could do class three gaming. And then they placed one of the casinos right on the edge of the, uh, of the exclusivity zone. So still, clearly still in the market, the gaming market of the Senecas, all the advertisement, much of the advertisement isn't just Rochester. They're advertising in Buffalo and Western New York. So this is what the state of New York has done. Now, technically, they may not have violated the exclusivity that was really geared towards only Class Three slot machines. But by any means that they could grab market share, 
they diminished the value of that exclusivity because the whole exclusivity was supposed to protect market share. So if the state found workarounds to, to find other ways to, to grab market share, then it diminished the value. So when the NIGC says, well, they probably didn't get what they paid for, the, the fact of the matter is they never got exclusivity. The state, as I said before, couldn't do class three slot machines through the entire you know, 14 years initial term of the, of, of the compact. They couldn't, I mean, they, they changed the constitution, I think in 2013 or 2014, but it wouldn't be until 2017 that their first casino would open up. So that entire 14 years, the state couldn't do class three slot machines by their own law, not by the compact, not by their exclusivity agreement and their revenue sharing agreement. So they got money for nothing. And if you, even if you were trying to put a value on that exclusivity, you have to acknowledge that every means that the state had to grab market share, if it had any value, that value was, was being decreased. It was being diminished significantly. The Interior Department's National Indian Gaming Commission acknowledged that the Senecas probably overpaid, and the investigator said it, it probably warrants uh, further investigation. But that was it. Out of that tension, again, uh, the uh, Interior Secretary, uh, Deb Howland, native person, who knows gaming because she was involved in gaming in, um, back in, in her nation, Laguna Pueblo. She knows gaming. She knows what revenue sharing is and, and, the, and the problems existing with it. The best she offered was a rule change. And that rule change was going to significantly change the, the leverage that states would have you know, to, because look, it's, it's prohibited that the states could force a revenue sharing agreement. That's, that's against the law. It's also against the law if the value of the state's concession drops down too low compared to what they're getting. And that's what the, the Interior Department refused to uh, ever investigate. They never monitor it. They, I think the early on they knew there was a problem there, but they, they refused to do their job. And I don't mean just Deb Hallen. I mean, we're talking about Interior Departments back to 2002 that, that I mean, that just, they, they, were not going, they weren't going to address it. So it's, it's, a, it's a problem that, that has existed through multiple um, administrations, Republican and Democrat. So, I mean, just to be clear. And again, the, and the initial compact was negotiated with, with a Republican governor, uh, George Pataki, and became contentious through most of the Cuomo administration and, and ultimately with Kathy Hochul extorting the last over half a billion dollars out of the Senecas so she could make her budget deal, her uh, Bill Stadium deal. That's, that's the way this thing has played out. So again, let me get back to what happens on December 10th. There are multiple scenarios that, and, and many of them have been put out there as a scare tactic. You know, some people are saying, well, on December 10th, we've got an unlawful operating uh, casino. If, if we continue to operate, we'd be breaking the law. Well, that's not entirely true. Now, they would be operating without a, an agreed-upon, um, currently agreed-upon gaming compact. But that doesn't mean that in the absence of the state's willingness to, to really come to the table, that the casino is, is somehow illegal. It's not an illegal gaming operation on December 10th when it was on December 9th, a legal uh, operation. It, that's just not the way it works. 
there are several options. Obviously, the one option is they can rush through and, and agree upon um, a compact, and the state legislature would do a special session, but none of that's going to happen. You know, and, and again, I, I have to get back to the fact is that the Seneca people are opposed to revenue sharing. What's, what's a bit peculiar in all of this is that the Seneca Nation was opposed to revenue, share, revenue sharing in 2017. They stopped paying. They stopped sharing revenue in 20, and they weren't just doing it because of a breach like they had done you know, pr prior to 2013. No, they weren't doing it because of a point of a contention. They were saying, look, we're done. The terms of the compact said we paid for 14 years, and that's what we paid. And the Seneca Nation actually argued, but their exclusivity, which was kind of pointless at this point, was still in place because they had paid for 14 years. It, it was like they were say, suggesting they paid in advance, and maybe that's part of their justification for, for grossly overpaying for 14 years. So, but this, this was the, the, the Seneca Nation was arguing, no, we're not paying anymore. That was in 2017. This thing would, would, this fight would go on for years and only get resolved like a year ago. So why was the Seneca Nation taking a position that they weren't going to make revenue sharing payments anymore since 2017? and now are fighting their own people over wanting to make revenue sharing of payments. And, and frankly, the agreements that they, that they, the agreement that they had originally, the one that died in the state legislature, that the Seneca people never even got to weigh in on, would have had them paying essentially another $2 billion to the state of New York. It was gonna be a 20 year deal with a 10 year renewal. It was gonna be 30 years paying at 19.5% of the gross gaming revenue, at which, as I said earlier, because of the cost of everything going up and the Seneca Nation would have to cover its, you know, all of the operating expenses out of its you know, close to 80%, when all is said and done, the Senecas weren't going to end up with any more money than the state of New York was once again. And, the, and then the, the state comes back with an 18.5%, which is absurd. It's an absurd number. There, there is no value in the, in the current exclusivity. And, and there are people that are arguing, yeah, but that exclusivity may only say class three, but it implies this. No, nothing is implied in a contract. And even if the state of New York makes certain stipulations about other potential gaming, if they can wordsmith what gaming they do include so it doesn't meet those specific definitions in that stipulation, they'll get away with it again. That's how they did it the first time. But here's the biggest thing. The state's competitors, including those so-called racinos and the casinos that, and, and there are new ones going up all the time. There, there, there are three, three more being built down in the New York City area, from what I understand, or, or will be built. But those state-licensed casinos and racinos, they've got to pay 40% of their gross gaming revenue to the state of New York. They have to pay an even higher percentage. So if the Senecas don't pay that 25 or 22 or 18 or whatever the percentage is, if they don't pay the state of New York, they have a huge competitive advantage over, over the state licensed gaming operations. In fact, it, they, get, they have a huge competitive advantage over any kind of gaming for all intents and purposes because they would finally be able to keep all of their revenue. So even if the revenue dropped off, I mean, honestly, even if the revenue dropped off by 50%, it would be a break even for them because they'd be keeping all of the revenue. So the Seneca Nation's strongest 
angle for competitive advantage is to keep all its revenue, not to pay for some absurd, bogus exclusivity that doesn't even apply anymore. Because, because again, let me be clear here. The industry is changing. Most gaming is now shifting away from massive class, world-class casinos being built. Yeah, maybe in New York City, you're gonna pull that off. But when they built, when the state approved a, a casino on the other side of Rochester called the Lago, that's been a, a failing enterprise since day one. It, they can't even pay back the money they borrowed. It's only been able to make interest payments because the market doesn't bear it. Not only because they're competing against an, a well-established gaming operations like, like, the, like the Senecas have, but the market is diminished. And a would-be gambler has sports betting. They've got lotteries. They've got scratch-offs. They've got, you know, racing. They've got all kinds of stuff that they can do. They don't have to go into a, a world-class resort to, you know, the, uh, where they give free drinks away and, and that kind of, no, they don't have to do that anymore. So it's become a, a, an increasingly saturated market and a diminishing market at the same time. Now that's not to say the Seneca Nation's gaming operations aren't viable, they're, they're absolutely viable. Frankly, they're viable even when they're being extorted for half of the revenue. But what makes them not just survivable, but thrivable is that they keep all the revenue. There is no number that the Senecas could pay to the state of New York and get something in kind that would be a net benefit for the, for the gaming operations. So as I hear state or Seneca Nation officials tell their people, well, we need to secure our, our market. Well, secure it with, with a, a competitive advantage. And again, when I hear the Senecas, not just the Seneca officials, but their lawyers, their gaming experts, their casino executives, when I hear them trying to pitch the value in, in making revenue share payments, it doesn't, it doesn't reconcile with the fact that they were stopping payments 20, in 2017. There's, there's just something really wrong with the picture. Now, I know a lot of people are saying, well, it's because it's corruption. Somebody's getting paid up. I, I don't know that that's true. I think it's a failure of leadership because, look, they could get answers from the Interior Department. Maybe they can't get intervention from the Interior Department, but they should buy now, at 35 years of IGRA, someone should be able to answer the question, well, what happens when, the, when a gaming compact expires? Because here's my pitch. My pitch is continue under the terms that you agreed upon of the current, of the current compact. Keeping in mind that you never agreed to keep paying in, uh, for the last seven years. So strike that, end revenue sharing, and just, but keep the same reporting. There's, there's some other points of contention about how the, the state tries to administer fees and that kind of stuff where they won't itemize the bills. And, and that can be resolved. And in fact, that point of contention, you know, continues. So even if they operated under the exact same compact that they've operated for 20, essentially 21 years, minus revenue sharing, because they didn't agree to it in the last term, it was imposed upon them by arbitration. And the Interior Department is acknowledging that there's something wrong in the equation between what the state's concession was and the revenue sharing that they get. So, so just continue. I mean, I heard one, uh, one of the Senecas who's, who's, a, who's a lawyer saying, well, the state would be happy to continue under the same compact because they get paid 25%. No, don't pay them 25%. Stop making the payments. And you know what? If you can delay 
negotiating and agreeing upon a, 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 a new compact until these rule changes that Deb Haaland and the Interior Department are recommending? Because if you make an agreement now, it, the rule change won't matter. And then some people say, well, we can always go back and revisit. No, you can't. You couldn't even stop payment after 14 years when the compact called for no payment beyond 14 years. You, you couldn't get away with that because binding arbitration, you know, look, rule of law doesn't apply to Native people. I've, said, I've talked about, you know, my friend, good friend Peter DeRico's book, Federal Anti-Indian Law. And it's the entrapment of Native people through the legal process. That's what the book is about. And what he asserts is that they make stuff up as they go along when it comes to Native people. They don't, they don't use the Constitution. There's no constitutional foundation that gives Congress the power to pass laws like IGRA. They just do it anyway. There's no rule of law that establishes that, that we have somehow been legally subjugated by the United States. They use the doctrine of discovery and, you know, and, and all of this, this absurd authoritarian rule when it comes to Native people. And we saw that even in arbitration, not just in the courts, not just in the state courts and the federal courts and the Supreme Court. We even saw it in arbitration. Those two white guys had to violate basic, you know, two significant basic principles. One of them is the, what they call the four corners doctrine of contract law. If it ain't in there, it ain't in there. You cannot suggest that a contract can be enforced based on what some people are implying should be in there. It has to be explicit, not implicit. It has to say it in there. It had to say the Seneca's pay for 21 years, and it didn't. There's another significant part that this arbitration um, panel refused to acknowledge, which is considered among the canons of construction, which basically say that when it comes to treaties and contracts with Native people, if ambiguity is, uh, is present in, that, in those agreements, the interpretation has to, has to sway towards Native people. And so why is that? Well, part of that is, frankly, a little bit of racial bias. They, they think that we're not as sophisticated as white people and, and that white people should know better. The government and these, anybody that we contract with, they, they should know better. They've got the higher price lawyers. They've got, you know, they've got, you know, PAC organizations. They make political contributions. They've got lobbying firms. They've got all kinds of stuff. So it should be on the state of New York to make sure that if they believe that payment was going to continue for, for another seven years, then it should have been articulated. It should have been explicit in the agreement. And the canons of construction say, if there's ambiguity, you got to rule on the side of Native people. And that's, that is a federal standard. And again, but when it comes to rulings in favor of Native people, we just don't get them. And when we do get them, they usually have some sort of other hidden agenda. You know, the ICWA challenge, when people are saying, when these, this white family was trying to um, un undermine and, and basically trash the Indian Child Welfare Act. The only reason it withstood the challenge was because the, the federal court says, well, Congress has ultimate authority on what happens in Native territory. Well, where did they get it from? I mean, they basically said when, when ICWA was passed by Congress to set up guardrails for, for the placement of Native children, they have that authority because it's in the Constitution. Well, it's not. It's not in the Constitution. There's no place in the Constitution that gave Congress plenary powers over Native people. 
But our own people will argue that because we, we are oftentimes so worried about the states because the states, you know, essentially have been more aggressive towards us for the most part than, than the feds have. But when push comes to shove, if our only defense against the states is to say, oh, our great, great white father in Washington or fathers in Washington have our back. No, they don't. They don't. And they don't have the authority to even have our back unless we gave them explicit authority to rule over us. And then, of course, when they, when they try to pull this, well, there's a federal trust responsibility. Peter DiRigo addresses this in his book. He says, the so-called federal trust responsibility essentially throws trust law out the window because our best interests are not what's at stake in, in, in the so-called federal trust responsibility. The federal government's is. And they know it, they say it, and they are unabashed about the fact that, now, we don't really have a trust law issue with, uh, with that federal responsibility. We just, we just balance, you know, um, the, the national interest with whatever interest we regard Native people to have. So, you know, I, I come back to this issue. And what I've got to say is the Seneca Nation does not necessarily have to give in to the state of New York. And they shouldn't. I mean, they should not even entertain the idea of continuing revenue sharing. In fact, they almost can't. The industry is changing. It's shifting. The best thing the Seneca Nation can do from a gaming standpoint is keep all its revenue and stop giving a lion's share or even an equal share to the state of New York. And you know what? Western New York, here's the way the, the so-called revenue sharing was supposed to work. Well, the way it was supposed to work is that the Seneca made these payments to the state of New York and then 25% of what the state received would go back to the local municipalities where the casinos exist. So the city of Salamanca, the city of Buffalo, and the city of Niagara Falls. They would get 25% based on the revenue that came from those casinos in those uh, localities. So the Seneca Nation could still do overtures to Buffalo and Niagara Falls and, and Salamanca. In fact, the Seneca Nation owns the real estate that the city of Salamanca you know, resides on. So they should step up with Salamanca in a big way. Anyway, and it doesn't have to be a revenue sharing agreement. It doesn't even have to be tied to the casino. It could be the Seneca Nation having a program, a good neighbor program with these municipalities. Now, it might not look like the 25% of 25% or whatever it is, I mean, whatever it's been. It might not look that way. And it may not even be with the municipalities. It may be with major actors within, you know, the shakers and movers in each one of those municipalities. So it would be more effective. It won't, won't get lost in, it won't be filling in potholes. It would actually be building something up. The Seneca Nation could do that. They don't need a revenue sharing agreement to do that. But again, only 25% of what they, $2.2 billion went to the state of New York. Over a billion of it left Western New York. So, when we want to talk about economic impact, and the Seneca Nation has done studies on it. And, and of course, it doesn't even make sense that they would be entertaining making revenue sharing of payments again once when they've withheld them in 2017 and when they made their case for why they wouldn't pay, not just the language of the compact, but the fact that they that the 
state of New York is the primary beneficiary of their gaming anyway. All of the revenue goes into New York eventually. The Seneca Nation doesn't have foreign investments. They, they aren't from another state or another country or another, you know, another region. The Seneca Nation and the Seneca people, every dime that gets spent into a casino that, that comes to the Seneca Nation or into the, the, the operation for that matter, gets spent right back in Western New York. $1.3 billion worth of economic impact the Seneca casinos have per year, every year. That's the, that's the impact that the, the gaming has. That should have bought you an exclusivity all by itself. Tesla didn't provide that when they got a million dollars or however many, you know, all of the tax abatements and everything else. Nobody else generated that much economic impact. But so the Seneca Nation's got no business even offering revenue sharing. And there is no, I mean, the only exclusivity that they've had, most of it was just on paper. Here's the thing. If they don't have any exclusivity, and this is the argument that, that gets made, and this is what some of the scaremongers do. They say, well, if we don't make revenue sharing payments, they're going to put casinos in Western New York. No, they're not. Why do I know that? Well, here's the thing. It costs half a billion dollars for a state license for a casino. So in order for a casino to, to be built in Western New York, in the Seneca market, somebody would have to finance First, the purchase of a gaming license for half a billion dollars. Then they have to spend another half a billion dollars or maybe something scaled down less. Maybe they'll do, you know, a, a Morton building or, or something cheap, do some, build something on the cheap. But they might, in all likelihood, spend another half a billion. So they're going to spend a billion dollars to build a casino and then compete against the Seneca Nation where their operating costs are not competitive. They've, they're still going to have to pay 40% to the, to the state of New York. 40% of the gross revenue. And the Seneca's will be paying nothing. The Seneca's competitive advantage will stop a casino from ever coming. And again, that's just the math on head-to-head -head competition. It doesn't visit the, the issues with a diminishing market and you know, uh, the shifting uh, the saturation that already exists because of other types of gambling. So that's not gonna, well, here's the other thing. Well, they're gonna put they're going to turn their class two facilities into class three. No, they're not going to do that either because, again, the Senecas have a competitive advantage. Uh, oh, they're going, to put, they're going to put machines in every convenience store like they do with their lottery. No, they're not going to do that because those convenience stores would have to buy a gaming license too. And if the Seneca Nation, after 21 years of gaining this gaming expertise, can't compete against a 7-Eleven with a slot machine in it, I mean... Don't even suggest that to me. That's, that's absurd. DeLago, a well-financed, well-built casino on the edge of the Seneca market, can't compete with the Senecas. When the Senecas were paying, they couldn't compete. I mean, that's, that's going to be given away in a fire sale here. They're trying to sell some of the Racinos because they can't compete in the market. They can't compete against the Seneca Nation, but they're, again, keep in mind, the state of New York is cannibalizing their own gaming operation. In fact, they were prepared to throw, have the Senecas build a casino in, uh, in Rochester, which would have destroyed DeLago, probably would have destroyed Batavia Downs, the, the Racino, um, and, and definitely would have impacted Hamburg and Figure Lakes and, and the other Racinos that are there because the Senecas would have had a bigger gaming footprint. Now, I'm not suggesting for a second the Senecas should have done that. Let DeLago work out its problems, you know, and, and maybe it'll get shuttered. 
you know, or, or and maybe at some point there would there could become a scenario where the Senecas would 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 acquire Delago. I don't know. I can't I can't imagine it because of the nature of the business. And look, today we don't even know what gaming's going to look like in five years, in ten years, in twenty years. And they were going to sign a twenty-year deal with a third with another ten-year renewal. We don't know what gaming's going to look like. And and to have the the audacity to suggest that the people in power today at the Seneca Nation and their lawyers and their consultants, that, they, that they're going to know more now than the next generation is going to know? Because when you're talking about 20 and 30 years, half the people who are involved in this process now will be dead by then. The Seneca people, the way I'm reading it, will not approve a gaming compact that involves paying another billion or two to the state of New York. They just won't do it. Now, they're going to be threatened. What the Seneca Nation officials are going to say, well, your annuities might end. You know what? The Senecas are getting like $600 a month. And I, and I could be wrong. Maybe it's, maybe it's more than that. But they're not. Anybody who thinks the Senecas are all rich because they have casinos, the sole source of public finance for the Seneca Nation comes from gaming. Oh, yeah, I know. They've got a couple of gas stations, and they have other residual income. But... Primary, the primary sole source of uh, income for the for this entire Seneca Nation to operate comes from gaming. They don't have taxes. They don't tax their people. They don't take away from their people to provide them services. No, they just provide services. So the vast majority of the, of the money goes into service and, and to making those $600 a month payments because they, they make them to everybody. Even the children get it uh, you know, banked for them. So... Don't let the, the, look, there's going to be more Seneca revenue if they stop paying than if they don't stop, than if they, they do pay and buy the so-called exclusivity. They've got no market protection with this exclusivity deal that they've, they've currently had. They literally paid for 14 years for no reason whatsoever. The state couldn't compete against them, and yet they paid them as if they could. I mean, it's an absurd proposition. So my recommendation let this thing expire. I mean, you don't have any choice anyway. It's going to expire anyway. And, and if the state refuses to negotiate a compact without revenue sharing, then pick it up with the Interior Department. But have a keen eye on these rule changes and what the current administration is suggesting in terms of what revenue sharing should look like going forward. Don't rush to make a deal that, that you know, is going to end up costing you another billion or $2. It's absurd. And, and it hurts. It doesn't just hurt the Seneca people. Frankly, it hurts all of Western New York. When that billion dollars left Western New York, it left the entire region. It went to Albany. It never came back. I mean, that, that's money that is sucked out of the economy. And shame on Buffalo and Niagara Falls and Salamanca for, you know, for begging for their, their 25% as they watch 75% of that revenue just leave the area. That was good for nobody except for a governor trying to balance their budget. And, you know, and it's not even a lot of money to, the, to New York State. Addressing the, the, the money that was given up to this uh, football stadium, that isn't for Western New York. I mean, yeah, it's, it gets Kathy Hochul some brownie points from her hometown. That was money given to a billionaire who's already made a bunch of money on the increased value of the Buffalo Bills over the years. Now, I realize that that's, that's the way the business works. But he was entitled to know 
public finance to make this happen. To the extent that he was going to put money up front, he's he's selling seats in advance. He doesn't even have to he didn't even have to dip into his own billion dollar coffers to you know to cough up money. Now, the, of course, the thing is overrunning your expenses, and you watch. Don't don't let the state throw more money at this thing. Any cost overruns should be on the Pagulas. They made their money off the environment. They they made billions off of uh, fracking for gas and oil. And they've made plenty of money, uh, you know, off of, off of the bills, and and this new stadium. It isn't even geared towards the common man. It, it's actually seats less, and we'll have more luxury suites for for wealthy people. Everybody else will be watching these games and you know on their tablets in the parking lot or at home. The average, the average person isn't even going to be able to afford to go to a Buffalo Bills game. And that's a whole other issue. So, anyway, let it expire. You don't have your choice anyway. It's going to expire. But stop paying. And make it clear. Make it clear to the state of New York and make it clear to the Interior Department that you're not going to get a new gaming compact negotiated by the time that it expires. And they should be able to answer the question. I mean, if, if, if asked directly, there's no way that Deb Haaland or, or any of her underlings can avoid answering the question. Can't we just operate with the old compact minus the revenue sharing since we never agreed to this current revenue sharing that we're doing now? I mean, I, I hate to say you got to go hat in hand to the Interior Department, but, but you can demand answers. This isn't about mother may I. This is like, we are in a situation where the third or fourth largest employer in the state of New York is being threatened by, by the state of New York to a shutdown. I don't believe that's ever going to happen. I don't, I, don't, I don't think it can happen. So that's my take on the deal. Um, feel free as you listen to this, this podcast and as you watch the video on Facebook or wherever else, uh, feel free to weigh in. Give me your thoughts. And if you think I'm wrong, then let's talk about it. I'm not Seneca. I can't go to the public meetings. I can't ask questions of, uh, you know, of, of key personnel. But you Senecas can. So let this information that I'm sharing here inform you so you are better equipped to take on your own elected officials who, for whatever reason, seem to be doing this about face, about revenue sharing. Like I said, they withheld revenue sharing in 2017. Why are they pitching it now that it's so necessary if they didn't think it was necessary then? That's the question. So I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native.